Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. One of the vital things about this is that, one, the problem with economics isn't just that it's wrong, it's that it's creatively incredibly limited. Behavioral science makes it permissible in a business or policy-making setting to suggest counterintuitive things. Yes. Hello, nudges. Welcome to another episode of Obehave, episode 22, maybe. Probably got that wrong. And staring at me is a beautiful man called Jordan Book. How are you, JB? Very good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, it's good, thank you. So, um, for this week's episode of Obehave, um, we asked Diana Fleischman to come in. Um, so you talked to Diana. Any highlights from the interview you want to go through? Um, I think really the just how important evolutionary biology is. Mm. So we talk a lot about psychology, behavioural economics, behavioural science. Um, but really, I think evolutionary biology is like the step behind it all. Yeah. So if if psychology is the what people are doing, we're explaining what people are doing. Um, it really seems like evolutionary biology is well why are they actually doing it in the first place nice. and so some of the things are yeah pretty fascinating when you look look at it through an evolutionary lens and is it always so it's always in the past i imagine yeah pretty much is that why they say there's no future in evolutionary biology <laughs> <laughs> little evolutionary biology very joke much, for you there nice. um well uh I was also in the interview and I found it bloody fascinating. Um, Before we cut to the audio, we have two special announcements. The first one is the summer school is open for applications. Um, Now, be quick because uh, the applications close on the 26th of April. If um, you don't know what the summer school is, it is essentially a week in July where we invite Um, 10 of the brightest, um, and when I did it, not so brightest, um, people with an interest in behavioural science to come into the agency and work on a live brief with us. Uh, There is no, um, uh, there isn't a kind of academic standard you need to be at. All you need to do is fill out the application, which is um, four questions and there's a behavioural problem within that. Um, and from there, um, we'll then hold some interviews and then we'll select 10 people. Last year was the most we've ever had. Uh, there was um, uh, a lot of applications um, and we've already started to get some through now. But if you have an interest in behavioural psychology, even if you're just good at problem solving, let's say you're just good at crosswords. I mean, it, the, what, what you can learn from other areas, we can bring to behavioural science um, and problem solving in generally, and you just get to spend a week in a cool agency in London. I mean, you like it, don't you, Jamie? It's pretty cool. It's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. 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 Um, Michael be here. Yeah. There. I mean, that's enough for anyone. Um, the second thing we need to talk about is Nudge Dog. Um, uh, so early bird tickets were sold in fifteen minutes. Uh, loads of mid birds around. We've only got one table left if you were planning to buy a table. Is that yeah, gone? one table left. I think there's about 40 mid bird tickets left. They're selling fast. So, so, um, so get on them. Um, we have just confirmed Uber as a speaker as well. Spotify is speaking. Gigarens are speaking. Rory's doing the keynote. Um, it's going to be pretty big this one this year, I think. So uh, all took it, uh, tickets and took it at uh, <laughs> nudgestock.co.uk. Um, for the summer school, if you go to check our Twitter and check our LinkedIn page and also go to uh, Ogilvy and just search for summer school behavioural science practice. Very exciting with Nudgestock uh, this year as well, doing the night before Nudgestock, uh, oh, the day nice. before. So. Yeah. If you want to extend the Nudgestock experience, yeah, yeah, come yeah. down on the, the 6th of June. We've got another speaker, a more intimate setting, another sort of talk by Rory. Um, stay the night, wake up by the sea. Um, no need to travel down to Folkestone in, in the morning on the 7th. 
Why wouldn't you do that? Why is the question you need yeah. to ask yourself. Um, okay, amazing. Go to nudgestock.co.uk uh, to find out more. This is the longest intro we have ever done. Um, but we had a lot to get through. Um, so, JB, do you want to introduce yourself? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the next speaker we've got up next is uh, Jordan Buck, um, consultant at the Behavioural Science Practice, interviewing Diana Fleischman. So joining me today we have Dr. Diana Fleischman, Hi. who is an evolutionary psychologist at the University of Portsmouth. Mm-hmm. Hi Diana. Hiya. Thank you so much for coming in. Uh, lovely to have you on the podcast. Um, I suppose firstly it'd be great if you could give us a bit of a background as to what evolutionary psychology is um, and what it, what it means. Sure. Evolutionary psychology is a way of looking at the human mind and human behaviour and human psychology. So it essentially tries to integrate what we know about economics, animal behavior, biology, into a way of looking at psychology that's consilient. Consilient is a really cool word that E.O. Wilson came up with uh, decades ago, and consilient just means that these kinds of different fields fit together. So oftentimes when you look at theories of human beings, you will notice that there's not really a whole lot of evidence about the phenomenon that people are talking about with other non-human animals, for example. So is there such a thing as toxic masculinity in chimps or bonobos or whatever? So evolutionary psychology aims to do that. And it also aims to kind of take a functional perspective. So if you were trying to figure out how to create an organism, design an organism that would be able to function in social groups, in certain environments, you know, what kinds of characteristics would you endow that organism with? And that's basically oftentimes how people look at other animals. So evolutionary psychologists think that there is such a thing as psychological adaptations. There's also psychological byproducts, so the kind of characteristics that go along for the ride. But so something like an adaptation would be what I work on, which is disgust. And disgust is an adaptation to avoid disease. So the idea is that disgust involves a variety of different elements. One of them is the be able to detect cues that a contagious disease might be present, to feel an aversion towards those cues, and then that causes the behavior that makes you less likely to get sick, because getting sick over evolutionary time was likely to impair people's survival and reproduction opportunities. Sexual jealousy is another one. Some people will say that sexual jealousy or romantic love or a variety of other feelings are things that are societally based or they're culturally constructed, and we would say that it just seems like these things are too important for survival and reproduction to be at the whims of something like culture to construct. So that's the kind of stuff that evolutionary psychologists look into. Awesome. And I suppose those thinking about those higher order emotions, if you like, or those human emotions like disgust and jealousy, um, maybe things like grief, gratitude, regret, yeah. would evolutionary psychology tell us that these are all actually adapted traits to help us survive and reproduce and thrive as a species? Yeah, so not as a species. This is something that people, I think, often talk about, like the survival of the species. Really, essentially, we're in competition with other members of our own species, and our emotions usually help us gain in relation to other people, or they can help us cooperate with others for the greater good occasionally. But uh, you would not expect, for example, things like homicidal ideation would ever have evolved if we were having emotions that were for the good of the species. And so my mentor, David Buss, who I used to work with, found that something like uh, 90% of men and 70% of women had at some point had some kind of homicidal ideation about another person, right? And that is adaptive in terms of thinking about how you want to get rid of somebody who is not facilitating your goals, who's actually actively uh, interfering with your certain strategies. And so that's something that you know, people killed each other throughout history. Obviously, it's less common now for a variety of incentive, punishment, and other reasons. But, yeah. So, we, evolutionary psychologists especially, thinking about emotions, which I have been talking about thus far, as cognitive programs that help us enact behavior that has good outcomes for either survival or reproduction. Yeah. It's a really interesting point about the, the violence to other people. Would evolutionary psychology therefore tell us that we are programmed in some way to be violent or to be um, to have those tendencies, or is that something which has kind of come later? Because I guess as a species, 
rates of violent deaths in the past were really high. Yeah. Whereas now as a culture, we're very good at stopping that most of the time. Yeah, I think we are pretty good at making incentives and disincentives in order to reduce the, the rate of homicide. In terms of the word programming, I would say that programming is a, is a good word, but also you have to think, you know, when people talk about something being programmed or something being hardwired, they're talking about a specific thing that you don't have much control over. Mm. Obviously, there are inputs into the program. I would say that if you grew up in an environment that was very stressful and very volatile, then you would be getting cues from the environment that you lived in an environment where other people were untrustworthy and where you actually might have to kill somebody in order to avoid being killed yourself. Whereas if you grow up in a stable environment, you might not have to. So there are some people who think that these cognitive programs or our evolved psychology actually takes inputs, especially during development, as cues as to what kinds of emotions that we should develop. So you might expect that, for example, you know, having a normal, regular food supply or having a mother who invested heavily in you or having a father who was in the picture, these are all cues about the kind of environment you're growing up into and they might either suppress certain things from coming online or not. So there's, you know, not great evidence uh, about any of this stuff yet because it's very hard to do these kinds of experiments. But you could imagine that you could take two people with identical genetics, one who lives in a very stressful environment where he doesn't know which, where his next meal is going to come from, and one in which he's in a very stable, loving environment with an investing set of parents. And while they both would have evolved emotions that had you know, were adaptations for certain kinds of survival and reproduction problems. One of them might be expressing them more than the other one based on the cues about the kind of environment that he expected to grow up into. Because you've talked before about um, Machiavellian traits. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Mm. Um, But traits where you're more um, cunning, deceptive, perhaps narcissistic. Um, You talked about the the dark triad of traits. Yeah. And perhaps how that can help you if your environment is more unstable. Yeah. Um, Is that the sort of thing which... Yeah, that's that's absolutely the kind of thing. So uh, there's, there's some controversy about, you know, how much these things are malleable. Uh, because nobody, I was on some program, uh, it was actually the big questions, and there was this woman there who was saying, you know, if what you're saying is right, then there are evil babies. And I don't believe there are evil babies. And I'm like, well, they're not evil when they're born. Just like you don't have breasts when you're born. <laughs> it doesn't mean you won't develop them later, right? You're still a female. Uh, so, yeah, it is true that there's these dark triad traits, psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and narcissism. I actually think narcissism is really benign and you know a lot of really important people are narcissistic. Uh, but in any case, these are these three characteristics or clusters of, of personality characteristics. And yeah, you might expect them to, to come about in different environments. We don't really know enough about behavioral genetics. So for a long time, for example, there was this idea that father absence was really predictive of uh, boys growing up to be uh, potentially violent and having things like homicidal ideation and it was a good predictor of girls going through puberty earlier and also being more promiscuous when they grew up. So there's been this big push in the United States for example where there's more and more uh, out of wedlock births. People are saying well it's really important that there's an investing father in the picture because you see these bad characteristics, violence, promiscuity. I mean, I would argue that promiscuity isn't that bad, so I don't really think father absence matters that much for girls. Like people, whatever. In Scandinavian countries, people are very promiscuous and it doesn't do anyone any harm. In fact, it might be on net better, but I won't get into that. Um, So in any case, people will say, oh, it's very important that you, uh, as a society, incentivize couples staying together so that their kids turn out better, less violent, less promiscuous. And now it seems like the weight of evidence has turned in that we think that actually um, fathers who leave their families are just genetically different, right? They're, they tend to be more aggressive. They tend to be uh, more sexually sensation-seeking or promiscuous themselves. And they have more uh, children that are more like that. It's not that they themselves, by leaving, change the environment. It's that they gave their children different genes Mm. than a father who stayed. Unless you could do an experiment where you forced a father who would otherwise leave to stay, or you forced a man who would otherwise stay to leave, you actually wouldn't be able to figure out these things unless you actually can figure out um, looking at the genes through, through things like 
uh, studies of, of genome-wide association or looking at things like twin and sibling studies, which is what people are doing now. So uh, it, it could be that there isn't actually much you can do to change these personality characteristics like people have thought in the past. And I guess that's the whole question of nature, nurture, and uh, at what point on that sliding scale do people fit? And it's very easy for, for people to sort of say, I think it's definitely this, or I think it's definitely this. Do you have a, a viewpoint as to, or does evolutionary psychology have a viewpoint as to how ingrained certain things are within us um, and how much culture has a, a role to play? Yeah, I think there's a variety of people who've made this argument. Uh, Steven Pinker made this argument a lot in the blank slate. But the idea is, you know, the, the left progressive idea is that human nature is very malleable and thus it really matters what we do in terms of culture and society. So, for example, one idea that the you know, left and progressives have is that uh, who we think is beautiful is socially constructed. It's because we see, you know, are you bikini beach ready, those mm -hmm. kinds of adverts on the tube, that we have a certain notion of what beauty is. And if instead we saw people who had one arm or uh, who had different body weights or who were of different races, then we would actually instead find those things beautiful. But... Evolutionary psychologists would say that we, we find cues of health beautiful, and if people don't look like they could be a viable reproductive, op reproductive option, then we might not find them, them beautiful. So one is kind of an optimistic view of human nature in that the idea is that if we could, as a culture, change things, change incentives, change representation, that we could actually change human nature, and that would... Um, improve the world and an evolutionary psychology view says there are things that are malleable for example men seek status always but actually what are the cues of status or what status looks like differs from culture to culture so you could potentially change that so i think a lot of the debate about you know how malleable human nature is in nature versus nurture is actually about the hopes that people have and a lot of, you know, I, I hang around with some people who are sort of centrist and right of center, and they're always talking about social justice and about leftists and the kind of views that they have. And I think that I understand that, you know, if I held the view that human nature was really malleable, and if I could, for example, ban videos that portrayed racism on YouTube, and if that eradicated racism because people were not inherently racist without any exposure to those ideas in the culture, then I would think that that was really important. I would myself, if I had these beliefs about human nature, be censorious. But there's a, a self-perpetuating cycle, I think, about uh, believing that you can change the world and, and make humans better. I guess if there's things which are universal across humans worldwide and even sort of tribes will have, have these universal emotions or they'll seek status or whatever it might be, I guess that's a pretty good indicator that this is something biological and um, an adaptive trait through evolution rather than based on the culture. Perhaps is it easy to judge whether something is biologically determined or um, where slightly more um, slightly more hardwired to do a certain behavior because we can see it in multiple cultures around the world. Absolutely, yeah. So um, recently, there's been some studies. So it, in 1993, there was a study done of, I think, like 53 cultures, and they were looking at people's preferences for mates in those different cultures, and they had some hypotheses about that. So on average, men prefer younger mates, women prefer older mates, and on average, men uh, prioritize attractiveness much higher than women who prioritize things like status and, and earning potential. And you see this all the way around the world. Um, of course, men and women actually are very similar in their, their core mate preferences, I'll just say. Uh, they want somebody who's um, healthy, emotionally stable, and kind, and intelligent, like both men and women do want those things, but they differed very remarkably on a few things. And at that time, uh, David Buss, who did that big study, he was interested in whether or not, oh, universally, people preferred uh, partners, especially men would prefer female partners who had fewer sexual partners because of this thing called paternity uncertainty. So the idea there is that a woman's previous sexual experience is a pretty good indicator of 
how promiscuous or whatever she's going to be in the future. And men didn't want to risk investing in offspring that were not theirs. So overall, men would have a preference for women who had less sexual experience than, um, and women wouldn't care as much because they always know their baby is theirs. It came out of them, right? Um, but what he found was that there was huge cross-cultural differences in this. And so he... Uh, but kind of falsified that hypothesis where he said, well, I thought it was the case that this would be a universal preference. But actually, you know, in China, both men and women preferred a partner who had very few sexual partners, right? Um, slightly higher preference uh, for men for female partners than, than for women with male partners, but still very high preference for both sexes. But in Scandinavia, people think it's really weird that if you're a virgin or if you had very few sexual partners, mm -hmm. right? And so... He just ended up saying, I don't think this is a universal uh, universal thing at all. Um, whereas women's preference for men who have higher status and higher earning potential, uh, there's this thing that people came up with as a alternative explanation, which is called the structural powerlessness hypothesis, which is that women are kept from getting as much money and status as men are, and therefore they rely on having a male partner who has those things as a way of accessing it themselves. And if that was the case, then you would expect that poor women would prefer wealthy, uh, sorry, poor men would prefer wealthy women because they were structurally powerless. And you would expect that wealthy women or women who are high in status would prefer male partners who um, were lower in status and, and resources than women who were poor. And you don't see that at all. Women who have high earning potential have even higher standards for the earning potential of their, of their partners. And you see that pretty universally, this kind of preference for higher status. So yes, I agree with that. But we've also seen things around the world where uh, people play economic games differently. There's, there's you know, certain kinds of economic games where you put in a certain amount of money into a pot, you could pay to punish other people in the game, for example, and you see really different uh, strategies around the world. And one idea is that this could be uh, cultural. A more controversial idea is that some human groups have been separated for long enough that there actually might be genetic reasons why. They're playing psychological strategies in groups differently. Obviously controversial because it gets to the idea that ethnic groups might differ uh, in their psychology which is something that people don't really mm. uh, like to talk about. But it's interesting, where does culture come from? You know, and according to evolutionary psychologists, uh, culture is a property of our evolved psychology. It has an influence on our psychology after it's, it's formed, but that's the origination of it. And you actually can't just say that culture imposes something on people without feedback from the, the evolved human nature. They're both so interlinked, it's very difficult to say, well, it's one or the other in this yeah. instance. I think that, you know, mm. with the advances in genetics, we're going to see some, some differences. And I think that, I hope that we're going to be able to see more about how genetics influence psychology um, and, and potentially see, you know, for example, we know that people who live on islands, um, there's this thing called the big five personality characteristics, which is openness. Uh, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism, and they're the five personality characteristics that account for most of the variance, you know, between uh, people. And we know that people who live on islands have slightly different personality characteristics than compared to people who live on the mainland. I don't know about the UK, but I know yeah. this is a study of things done in Greece. Um, and it could be, you know, that there's a bottleneck that people who choose to move places. I think a lot of the American character and the Australian character have to do with the kinds of people who came from different places to live there. You know, the whole American character, I think, has been formed a lot because that there was a, a selection filter about who went there, right? And so there still is. Does that mean people that live on islands tend to be more... Um, I think more open extroverted. to experience yeah, more extroverted. Yeah, I think that was the... I, but don't quote me on that. I definitely think it was more extroverted. I can't remember which other ones were different. That's interesting. I wonder if that applies to the UK. Probably not. Seems, <laughs> seems maybe not compared <laughs> to America. It's too big an island. It's too cold. <laughs> yeah, too cold. Too cold for extroversion. Um, it's really interesting what you're saying about how across cultures, people will, or men will seek status and men tend to be more interested in attractiveness in a partner. Um, and I guess there are certain characteristics we're, which we're attracted to and which we try and show to win a mate, mm -hmm. um, the whole sort of sexual selection theory. Have you, have you seen or do you predict any change with the way that we go about courtship and finding a mate and attracting a mate? 
um, today compared or in the future compared to obviously in our history we didn't have Tinder and Bumble and phones and it was very much sort of showing your attractiveness or showing your power or showing your land or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, I imagine that's been a huge shift in our evolutionary terms which probably has some big knock-on consequences for us and how we live our lives. Yeah, I think Tinder demonstrates something about human psychology that is a little bit troubling to me, which is that actually the characteristics that people care about most in a mate is just proximity and attractiveness. And that's like all other animals, right? People who use Tinder wouldn't say that, but basically there's another uh, app which I've heard about people using, I think it's called Hinge or something, where you can actually tell if you've crossed the same path that someone else has on the app. It's a little bit like a pheromone trail. Mm. It's kind of gross. You just walk past this person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it. it's, a, it's it, yeah, it's, it does remind me of, you know, uh, animals urinating on trees and stuff it's quite like that so um yeah what people care about most is is proximity and attractiveness proximity is an easy one to do just yeah be near to them that's right uh not do much about my attractiveness but i, I never i've never i've never dated on tinder because i i think i have kind of unusual preferences and so I, I although i've heard that like all the normal attractive people are on there and not on the other sites that, that i've used in the past um, I think it's interesting, I, I think it's Dan Ariely that's talked before about um, now that we have this endless supply of potential mates and all you've got to do is swipe, it makes it very difficult to be satisfied <laughs> with the one that you've got. Um, I think there's a, it's a really interesting study where they gave people paintings, I think it was, you can pick a painting or a picture or a poster um, for two weeks and one group were told at the end of the two weeks um, you who own that poster. The other group were told, during those two weeks, you can swap for any other poster or painting. Uh -huh. um, and then at the end, you keep the one that you've got at the end. And essentially, they found that when you couldn't swap, they were much happier after those two weeks. Whereas the ones that could swap, it's always in the back of your mind, have I got the right one? Would something else be better? Yeah. Could this, is this definitely perfect? Yeah. Um, and I wonder if that is the case for, for dating with apps nowadays. Well, not just apps. You know, it, it would have been that, you know, for thousands of years, we lived in small-scale societies, the number of potential partners you had to pick from. You know, if you were a woman, in most societies were polygynous, so you had men to pick from, either men who were completely unpartnered or men who had like one or two partners already, and you had to kind of decide whether or not that, that trade-off about having a man who was all to himself or having a man and sharing him with some other women if he was good enough to, you know, to be worth partitioning in that way, right? Whereas men were seeking out um, women who were uh, unattached for the most part, right? And so the number of people you would have had to choose from who met the criteria of being unrelated to you, whatever, might have been, whatever, 10 or 20. And now there's this kind of endless supply. Even, you know, pre-Tinder, pre-dating apps, uh, there's possibly thousands of people to, to, to choose from. And so that can essentially, I agree with you, uh, breed dissatisfaction in that there's always kind of a bigger, better deal and as I said before, proximity and attractiveness are the main things that people choose on, and those are infinitely replaceable. There are thousands of other people who are also attractive and proximate. So and one thing yeah. I think that I've talked about in terms of polyamory is that it's important if you have a partner that you want to do kind of an open relationship style thing with, that you have unusual things in common. Otherwise, you're both infinitely replaceable with other people, mm. which is what some people like. Some people like that kind of... That's interesting. Um, I keep wanting to use the red pill, the, the carousel. No, I don't want to say the, the red pill term. But um, the other thing I was going to say about uh, Tinder and, and Bumble and all that stuff, yes, it does It does lead you to think that. I don't have a problem with the kind of are you bikini beach ready advertisements for the reason that I think that they breed body dissatisfaction. But there is such a thing called the contrast effect where if you see other people who look really attractive in photos, it actually does cause you to be dissatisfied with people in real life who are like not photoshopped and stuff like that, right? Mm. And so I do think that seeing depictions of really attractive people all the time, looking out at you from magazines and adverts, Instagram. actually could have, yeah, Instagram, um, could have uh, subtle dissatisfying effects on, sure. on our relationships. And I know some people, I mean, I don't agree with the kind of anti-pornography movement as it is, but I certainly think that it, um, on the one hand, it's a way of getting sexual variety without actually getting sexual variety, which I think is an important outlet, especially 
uh, for men. But on the other hand, also, it can cause you to become dissatisfied because you're getting cues of uh, all these possibilities that are actually not real. Mm, that's fascinating. And you mentioned just there that um, in our evolutionary history, most societies or cultures or, or tribes would be polymerous. Polymerous? Poly- polygynous. Polygynous. So gyne is female, and andry is male, so polyandry is multiple husbands, and polygyne is multiple okay. wives. So at, at what point did monogamy sort of take over, I suppose? Um, there's complicated views on this. Um, this is actually another thing that has reduced homicide, what people think has reduced homicide over the course of uh, civilized history, is that... Um, the men who are the most likely to commit suicide and the most likely to be violent in society are both men who don't have mates and also men who mm. don't have the ability or wherewithal or status or money or whatever resources to get mates. So if you're getting cues as a male that you're an evolutionary dead end, then you're much more likely to act out because any risk is worth mm. getting off of the floor level, you know, likelihood that you have of, of attaining a mate, right? Wasn't there a, a worry with... Um, because of the one-child policy in China that everyone yeah. tried to have um, boy. a boy. So now there's a lot more kind of young adult males than young adult females, and it's those kind of problems which can then manifest. Yeah, they're just going to have to airlift sex robots. I <laughs> but uh, it is... It is <laughs> really not far off. Some people have talked about... Yeah, so, I, so monogamy uh, was an answer to that particular problem in that, you know, a, a sort of assigning... Jordan Peterson has called this enforced monogamy, which people got their knickers in a twist about because it sounded like it was forcing people to be monogamous. It's not forcing people to be monogamous. It's just saying that like the norms are um, mm. to engage in monogamously. Um, but yeah, 80% of societies have been polygynous, and polygyny was very common. Uh, but most men actually were monogamous. So there was only like a few high-status men who had more than one wife. And there's this thing called the polygyny threshold model. Um, so in an, a, a population in which women choose between having one man all to themselves or sharing, getting a piece of one man who's higher in status, which one do they choose to take? That They're kind of making uh, trade-offs in that case. And in an environment where uh, baby boys are more likely to die at infancy, so they're, they're less robust than baby girls, but also war and other kinds of things would, would have killed men off, risk-taking, for example, then there would always be more women than men, and it made sense to have the openness to uh, for one man to have more than one wife in that context. Whereas when the mortality rate went down, then there actually was a sex ratio that looked like the sex ratio at birth. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, the, there's the same number of boys and girls born, a few more boys die off in very early infancy, and then a lot of young men were dying for whatever reason um, in young adulthood. And so uh, polygyny made sense in, in that context. So, if, you know, for a couple of reasons, as I said, yeah, reducing violence, but also because violence was reduced, uh, there were more men to go around. That's so interesting. And in that decision for a female, do I have a single male, a single mate who is of lower status or a bit of a higher status male. Yeah. What's the kind of payoff or ratio or was there a tendency to go for one or the other in our evolutionary history? I mean, I think, yeah, women were, were deciding. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, they would have had to kind of try to assess a male status. I do think that psychologically, women have this capacity. And there's this thing called um, hypergamy, which... Uh, I don't think that like Red Pill and, and Manosphere and pickup artist people get very many things right, but I think that they focus on hypergamy where no one else really focuses on hypergamy. And hypergamy is the hyper higher gummy relationship marriage. The the tendency for women especially to get together with people who are higher in status than themselves, right? And women have a, a taste for that. So uh, women would have had to assess a man's status and figure out if they were willing uh, to divide it uh, among, you know, with, with several other women. And traditionally, co-wives have had not entirely harmonious relationships. Um, there's some evidence, for example, that in polygynous cultures, um, women are more in favor of wife beating because I, I guess they imagine, they're imagining their, the other wives that, that they're sharing with getting beaten. That's surprising. And if I'm allowed to say, you are in a polyamorous relationship. That's fine. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I think it's, it's interesting thinking about that and just with what we were talking earlier about sexual jealousy and we were yeah. talking about sort of emotions being an evolved trait. How, how does that um, interplay work in polyamorous relationships where you have this evolved reason to feel sexual jealousy but you're sort of responsible for your own emotions? Yeah. Uh, so certainly since the advent of birth control and paternity testing... Uh, sexual jealousy is a bit of a vestigial emotion. It's a little bit like you know the emotional appendix. You don't really need it. It can be helpful, obviously, but it's not it's not super necessary. Emotional jealousy is, I think, still a bit more useful because you are emotional jealousy makes you sensitive to cues that your partner is potentially uh, going to leave you. And in the polyamory kind of community, um, and, and we do things quite differently. Uh, we have a very hierarchical relationship. Uh, we're very core to one another. And then our other partners uh, are, you know, less... There's some people in, in polyamory who have a seriously difficult time just saying the obvious, which is this person is more important to me than this other person mm -hmm. because they're worried about how that might make other people feel. And there are people who practice something called uh, relationship anarchy in which they're unwilling or uh, they, they think it's, it's some kind of reduction of people's humanity uh, to define their relationships with other people in specific ways or they want to have the freedom to redefine relationships constantly. In any case, we have the security of this kind of primary relationship, which is one thing. We're very unusually well-suited to each other, uh, which is another thing. But also because we're both evolutionary psychologists, we have some understanding about kind of what might make us jealous. I'll just give you a really weird example of something that makes me jealous uh, or that makes Jeffrey jealous <laughs> too. So Jeffrey, I, I'm more emotionally jealous as all women are. Jeffrey's more emotionally, I'm sorry, more sexually jealous as all men are. We have that normal kind of um, sex difference, right? Um, but one thing that, that unexpectedly made me jealous is if he was seeing somebody and then he took them out socially. I was actually in a polyamorous relationship before this too, and that was also something that made me jealous, right? I wanted to be considered like the social partner, mm. right? I wanted like recognition from the group as the partner, and especially if somebody was meeting uh, somebody like that I was dating for the first time with another person, that would make me jealous, even if that person wasn't important, even if they were just going to a party or something like that. Yeah, that, because it signifies. Yeah, the, it, it, it oh. rubbed me the wrong way. and. That, you know, that kind of weird kind of social jealousy. Um, with, uh, with Jeffrey, there's a, a partner that I have who cooks really, really amazing food. And uh, he was finding himself feeling jealous that I was eating amazing food. So obviously, if we went to a restaurant and some chef made me something delicious, that's fine, fine. right? Jeffrey's paying for it. So in some sense, he's outsourcing <laughs> courtship in a normal way, right? Um, whereas if I'm being fed by somebody from his own hands, uh, that was kind of a thing that was, I don't know if we would call that emotional jealousy, but we actually have been talking about this a lot. And it's, it's, it's really a delight because you're taking this emotion that's kind of unsettling and unfortunate and dissecting it to such an extent that you're seeing the kind of beauty in its design. And, and we really enjoy that in I guess, ways, yeah. I guess that's what um, uh, appears to me. Is there, as well as sort of we need, you need to manage it and find a way so it's not like this negative, um, this negative thing in the relationship, is there also an element of like that's the, not positive, but that's sort of exciting or it's a... Uh, a good emotion sometimes. Yeah, so, so talking about like women's hypergamy, right? Women prefer men who are higher in status than they are. Well, the agents, whatever you want to call them, who are best at sussing out the status of men are other women. There is evidence, for example, that a woman will prefer a man that other women are looking at. So if you picture a man either sitting by himself or with attractive women looking like they're interested in what he's saying, the man who's surrounded by attractive mm -hmm. women is considered more attractive. Whereas men don't show that same effect. They don't find a woman surrounded by men who look like they're interested in what she's saying more attractive okay. than, a, and than a woman sitting on her own. And so um, with Jeffrey, uh, you know, and, and there's people like Dan Savage who even suggest this. They say, if you get jaded with your partner, uh, it's actually a profoundly unnatural state of affairs that we have now where you can be with a partner long term and never see them admired or flirted with by other people. And you're basically getting cues from the environment that your partner is totally undesirable mm. if you never see anybody else 
trying to steal them, right? Because that would be, you know, if you're living in a small community, you would definitely at least see other people chatting with and flirting with your, your partner. And so, um, yeah, if, if somebody else is interested in my partner, then it makes me admire them more. And it, it, it basically my hypergamy, like mm. that, that mechanism, um, you know, I know what it's all for. And it, it gets juiced up by that particular yeah. kind of context. And it's, it's, um, it's the same way as like, you know, enjoying fatty food. Like even if you know it's a very primarily, you know, animalistic thing that you're enjoying, you can still enjoy it knowing, you know, from a kind of more evolved and human perspective that, that you're enjoying something for kind of an evolutionary and animalistic reason. That's fascinating. It's fascinating that it's... Um, a case in females but not males mm. as well I guess is that because of the males tend to be more status seeking or females yeah. tend to find that status attractive whereas I mean I, I have, I, have I, I mean if somebody's interested in me um, it's usually in part because of like that I'm a whatever a psychology lecturer and um, and for uh, whatever other reasons. So I think that the men that I date do have often have this feminine quality where they all are like, oh, it's cool that X, Y, Z person it was fascinated by you or flirting with you because it must mean that you're attractive or desirable. Mm. So men have this too, but I think women have it to a much greater extent. And I also was recognizing that I had two different kinds of, of jealousy, which was that if um, Jeffrey was pursuing or being pursued by somebody that I thought was cool and attractive, then I would feel that normal emotional jealousy about fear of abandonment mm. like that's one kind but if he was pursuing somebody or someone was pursuing him that I thought was not as good then I had a, a no but it actually made me jealous in a different way like almost uh -huh. as a, a an aversive negative response to a potential loss in status mm. like he didn't seem as high status in me because somebody I thought wasn't that cool was was uh, he was pursuing or was pursuing him yeah, yeah. interesting okay and I, I, I wonder if um, thinking about polyamory, but also in general other learnings from what we know from evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. Are there certain things that you think the world would be a better place if only everyone understood X, Y and Z, or if only we did something differently and we, we understood this thing from evolutionary biology, then the future huh. will be better? I, um, yeah, I just, I just found that it's really, really good for my well-being to think about things from an evolutionary perspective and essentially to be skeptical of my own feelings. Like I've told you just now, you know, kind of the, the way that I exercise skepticism on my, on my own feelings and you can feel profoundly um, threatened. You know, people who have social anxiety, for example, it makes sense to feel social anxiety when you're speaking in front of a large group of people. It's mm -hmm. quite an unnatural and modern thing, and it, it could have gotten you in a lot of trouble um, ancestrally if, if, you know, if everybody you ever knew, um, everybody was seeing you um, speak or act in a certain way. So I just think that the, the kind of take-home message that I would say is, yeah, to be skeptical of your feelings. Um, in certain circles of people, especially people who are interested in psychology, they have this kind of what is natural is good. Ironically, they, they often think that things are culturally constructed, but they have this kind of idea that, uh, that they should accept their feelings and that they should listen to their feelings. And I think you should listen to your feelings up to a point. If you find that they're not serving the end goal that you want, or if they're going to sabotage something. And you can actually dissect them the way that I've been dissecting things like emotional jealousy, like anger, like disgust, like anxiety. If you can do that, I think that the other piece of that puzzle is for me, uh, mindfulness and meditation. The only way that I can actually, so it makes, there's one piece of the puzzle which is understanding from an evolutionary perspective what your native programming is like, right? There's another piece which is actually being able to turn your mind in such a way that you can help those feelings have less less of an impact on you. And I, don't, I haven't talked much about going on meditation retreat before, but going on meditation retreat is really unglamorous and you will have uh, just ruminations and ruminations for days at a time. And you can't talk to anybody about those things. So there's nowhere for them to get any mm. uh, social validation. There's nowhere for you to get social validation. It's like leaving a baby to cry for days until it stops crying, right? That's what it feels like in your head. And um, there's this thing in behaviorism which is called an extinction burst, 
which is if you stop rewarding a certain behavior, what you see before it goes away forever is a huge peak in that behavior. If you're giving a rat a piece of food every time it presses a lever, you stop giving it food, you'll see it lever press hundreds of times before it finally sure stops, right? Not... Yeah, just to make sure, mm. just because it's trying to explore what that, uh, you know, whatever that re sure. reinforcement landscape looks like. And you feel that in your own mind is that you're going to feel worse when you start thinking about these things before you feel better. Because if you've always gotten validation for crying or complaining or nagging or any number of other things that you do in order to solicit investment from other people, no matter what it's like, you're going to experience a huge upsurge in that before it finally dissipates. And that's one thing that I think is really important to remember. I guess mindfulness is about yeah recognizing an emotion as an emotion rather than this is me, it's sort of... This is this feeling that I have at the moment, yeah. which I guess is sort of similar. Oh, this is this feeling, and this is maybe why I'm feeling it evolutionarily, but also just recognizing this isn't just me. This is just me feeling this emotion and um, being able to perceive it rather than live it. Yeah, to, or to think about yourself as you know a society of mind or containing multitudes, mm. right? Which is uh, there's certain parts of my mind that I know act in a certain way and. Uh, none of them is actually really me. This is one thing that you that you think about or meditate about when you are uh, engaging meditation. Uh, is that obviously uh, there's 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 the kind of serene bit of your mind, and then there's all of the bits that are shouting for attention, uh, and then there's the part that goes shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs> right. So there's all of that goes on, and uh, I don't really know uh, if there's anybody who's who's really integrated evolutionary psychology and meditation, but uh, I, I definitely feel what my programming, you know, or what my evolved psychology is like quite acutely on retreat. And mm. thinking about the, the future of human beings, I suppose, so on an individual level, yeah, recognizing our evolutionary past and the importance of meditation, are there things which you think are big evolutionary pressures on us as a species today? I guess it's, it's tempting to think that evolution has stopped, that we have now yeah. conquered evolution and we're not evolving anymore. Well, things are happening so quickly. Um, you know, I, I don't really know. There's this thing called the Flynn effect, which is the idea that IQ has increased because of uh, people going to get schooling longer, being educated for longer, having better nutrition, having less infectious disease. All of those are things that can improve uh, your cognitive ability because uh, disease... Uh, lack of schooling and lack of nutrition would have all whittled away at your cognitive ability. But it's difficult to say. I mean, pretty much everything else in society, even the enhanced nutrition and reduction in infectious disease, has been a real just a blip uh, in comparison to the whole length of our evolutionary history before that. So it would be very difficult for me uh, to speculate. Um, I'm a transhumanist. I really think that we should use technology to improve the human condition. I don't think that the status quo, which is that we are machines optimized to survive and reproduce, even when it makes other people and ourselves miserable, should be celebrated just because it's, it's natural. I don't think that makes any sense. And that's the mainstream kind of view if you dig down. So I would just say that I, I hope you know, right now, um, I had a student this past term do some work on um, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, looking at people's views on, for example, if, uh, if my partner and I had 100 embryos to choose from and we could pick uh, one, what would we optimize for? Would we optimize for intelligence, attractiveness, mental health, etc.? And people have views about what's best to optimize for. People generally think it's okay to optimize for things like reduction in disease, but not for things like attractiveness or intelligence, mm. for example. And I think that altering ourselves is, is really the next step. And ironically, we are ambivalent about that uh, because uh, our evolved psychology is wary of anyone trying to control us or even any kind of change to our identities. We're, we're wary of those things. And that's something I really would like to see uh, happen to us as a species is that, you know, instead of just being ruled by all of our previous evolutionary history, the survival and reproduction aspect of it, that we could actually optimize for things that are more enlightened. Awesome. Um, if I could ask one last question, 
Um, I guess it would be thinking more broadly of evolutionary psychology as a, a discipline, as a field. And correct me if I'm wrong, but perhaps one of the most common um, criticisms or the most common um, things that people pick up on it is that how do we know when something is the case because of evolution? Um, because you can have a hypothesis, but how easy is it to test that? And how often could we come up with sort of just-so stories yeah. where we say something like, yawning is contagious because it would have um, led to the group being more aware and more alert, um, whereas actually, in reality, that might not be the case. It might, we might just be trying to shoehorn it into the, an evolutionary story. I think that the speculation can have better and, and worse uh, qualities to it. Uh, I've heard a lot of evolutionary speculations. There's a phenomenon called female sexual fluidity. Women are more likely to be bisexual uh, than men are, and women uh, are more likely to change or identify as different sexual orientations throughout their lifespan. Uh, there's an evolutionary psychologist who said um, this was a way that uh, women evolved so that when they were co-wives, so they were with like, you know, co-wives with one man, they could get along better. The impression there that he has is that like if women had sex with each other, they would get along better. <laughs> Apparently he's never met lesbians before. <laughs> but, um, so I think that's a bad speculation for a variety of reasons. I think that there are better and worse speculations. Unfortunately, all evolutionary psychologist speculations kind of get lumped in together as kind of just so stories. Some of them are more plausible, some of them are less plausible, some of them are testable, some of them are not. If I'm telling you a story that I think about why something evolved, I will usually flag it up as speculation. I'll flag it up as something that is testable or not testable. A lot of evolutionary psychology has been tested, and there's actually a whole field um, recently. Uh, there's this thing called the ovulatory shift hypothesis, which is that women have different preferences for men when they're ovulating as opposed to when they're not ovulating. And uh, in the largest sample to date of something like 500 women, uh, they've only found very mixed support for anything. A lot of the things that we've been talking about for a decade as you know, women prefer more dominant men with more masculine faces when they're ovulating, it might not be true anymore. So evolutionary psychology was falsified. I think it's totally... Um, I think it's totally valid to uh, to have made that particular hypothesis. I think it was a, a good, as what I would call a good speculation, but you really have to follow the data. Another tragic example is my dissertation work. In my dissertation work, I said that during a certain portion of the menstrual cycle, women should exhibit more disgust sensitivity than other portions of the menstrual cycle. A much larger study came along and said that they didn't find any difference, and they actually measured women's hormone levels uh, in a better way than I did myself. And so I'm doing another collaboration and looking at that. So evolutionary psychology hypotheses get falsified, but that's what I would just say, kind of take home message. There's good speculation, there's bad speculation, and there's testable hypotheses and we should follow the data rather than what seems like it would be most adaptively relevant. Diana Fleischman, this has been uh, absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Amazing. Um, you can follow us at Ogilvy Consult UK on Twitter or don't forget to check out our blog, o-behave.tumblr.com. Uh, finally, big thank you to Sound Lounge and Julian Goodkind for the music. Until next time, bye.